Our scripture reading this morning is from Revelation chapter 14, verses 1 through chapter 15, verse 4. I'll give you a minute to find that. Um, it's easy, Revelation is the last book in the Bible. That ought to help. Once again, from Revelation chapter 14. Then I looked, and there before me was the Lamb, standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000 who had his name in his Father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a sound from heaven like the roar of rushing waters, and like a loud peal of thunder. The sound I heard was like that of harpists playing their harps. And they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. No one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the church. These are those who did not defile themselves with women, for they kept themselves pure. They follow the lamb wherever he goes. They were purchased from among men and offered as first fruits to God and the lamb. No lie was found in their mouths. They are blameless. Then I saw another angel flying in midair, and he had the eternal gospel to, pro to proclaim to those who live on the earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. He said in a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heavens and the earth, the sea and the springs of water. A second angel followed and said, Fallen! Fallen is Babylon the great, which made all the nations drink the maddening wine of her adulteries. A third angel followed them and said in a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on the forehead or on the hand, he too will drink of the wine of God's fury, which has been poured out full strength into the cup of his wrath. He will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment rises forever and ever. There is no rest, day or night, for those who worship the beast and his image, or for anyone who receives the mark of his name. This calls for patient endurance on the part of the saints who obey God's commandments and remain faithful to Jesus. Then I heard a voice from heaven say, Write, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, they will rest from their labor, for their deeds will follow them. I looked, and there before me was a white cloud, and seated on the cloud was one like a son of man, with a crown of gold on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. Then another angel came out of the temple and called in a loud voice to him who was sitting on the cloud, Take your sickle and reap, because the time to reap is come, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he was seated on the cloud, swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was harvested. Another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. Still another angel who had a charge of the fire came from the altar and called out in a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle, Take your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of grapes from the earth's vine, because its grapes are ripe. The angel swung his sickle on the earth, gathered its grapes, and threw them into the great winepress of God's wrath. They were trampled in the winepress outside the city, and the blood flowed out of the presses, rising as high as a horse's bridles for a distance of 1,600 stadia. 
I saw in heaven another great and marvelous sign, seven angels with the seven last plagues, last because with them God's wrath is completed. And I saw what looked like a sea of glass mixed with fire, and standing beside the sea, those who had been victorious over the beast and his image and over the number of his name. They held harps given them by God and sang the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. Great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of the ages. Who will not fear you, O Lord, and bring glory to your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. First kids, you are dismissed to worship kids style. You want to head on out to there. And this Sunday we are diving, after taking a couple of weeks off, back into our sermon series through the book of Revelation. I just want to say up front, before we dive into this, this text is a challenging one to jump back into. And really, the text for the next couple of weeks are going to be particularly challenging. I knew going into the book of Revelation, we would hit this kind of stretch that um, challenging because of the, the violence of them in some ways and some of the stuff going on. And so um, there is some good stuff here, and we will dig into that. But I want to acknowledge up front that we're going to have to wrestle with some things. And if you're sitting as we read the scriptures feeling uncomfortable, that is always a sign that we need to especially be attentive to those parts of God's word. But let's pray, and then we'll dive in. God and Father, be with us now as we read your word. Be with all of us. That we're sinners as we sit under its authority. Be with me, even though I'm a sinner, as I seek to proclaim it. Pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. I was thinking about a few months ago, I had a morning where I had several meetings with people and like visits and stuff. And, um, and it was lunchtime. And um, it was one of those mornings that was super productive, you know, and you had some good conversations. And I was feeling like, man, like I'm, I'm a good pastor. Like I'm good at this. And I... <laughs> Stopped at the gas station to use the restroom and walked in and looked in the mirror and realized, one, that my glasses had been on crooked, and two, that at some point I had, like, run my hand through my hair and it was all sticking up at Crazy Angels, and three, that I had buttoned my shirt wrong, and it was actually off one button, uh, and had apparently been that way all morning. And I thought two things in that moment. One, I thought, why didn't somebody tell me about this? But two, I thought... Just I reflected on the reality that there is often this gap between what is going on in my head and, and what is actually happening in the world. And that if I could just see what's actually true, see what's actually happening, it would often change how I feel and act. That's true in those funny situations. It's also true in more serious ones. I think about sin. Sin often works that way. We're called to fight sin, and often if only we could see the truth of it, our fight would be helped. I was thinking about, uh, I remember back when I worked in the business world, this time when I saw this coworker who was really, really fond. She was like the gossip person, right? You know, of the company and would go around and tell everybody about everybody else. And it was clear that she did it because it made her feel like people liked her because of it and like she was important. And I remember, of course, that wasn't true, right? If you've ever watched that. I remember this time when I was overhearing, and she came over to two other co-workers and was, oh, did you hear about this and this, and was doing that, and then she walks away, and as soon as she's out of earshot, one of those other two co-workers turns to the other one and says, what, uh, 
jerk. I mean, she used a different word, but, but you know, I mean, um, and I, I wasn't involved, but I just found myself thinking, like, there's a part of me that wishes, like, that is sad, but if only that woman could see that, right? If only she could recognize the way her reputation and standing in people's opinion of her is actually hurt by her sin, a lot of the motivation that she has for doing it would disappear. And on a larger level, that's what John is kind of doing in Revelation. In chapters 12 and 13, he unveils these realities about the world. In chapter 12, we see Satan, the great dragon, who's defeated and cast down to earth, but is roaming around seeking to destroy the followers of the Lamb. And in chapter 13, we see these two servants of the dragon, the the two beasts which represent worldly empire and power, and and kind of political power, and then kind of worldly economic and religious, false religious power. And they're working together to serve the dragon. And the point of those visions and the point of all the visions we're going to see this morning can be summed up in verse 12 of chapter uh, 14, where it just says, Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. So the whole application of all of this can be summed up like that, which is saints endure, continue to follow Jesus and seek to obey him and be faithful to him. That is what this is about. But we have all these visions because what they're trying to do is kind of show us the truth that lies behind that call to endurance. Help us to to see things about the world and life and sin and God that compel us, encourage us to behave that way. And so what we're going to do this morning is we're going to look through this chapter and we're going to see four pictures, four truths that are meant to be like that look in the mirror, that are meant to kind of reveal to us um, things that should call us to endure, four realities. But before we dive in, I'm just going to say up front, of those four realities, two of them are sort of challenging and just, in, you know, and kind of heavy. And I'm, I'm going to warn you that I'm putting those two first, right? So there will come a point about halfway through the sermon where you're feeling the weight of that, and I just want to acknowledge that and say they won't all be that heavy. But four things John says. The first is that Babylon will burn. Babylon will burn. So if you pick up in verse 7, John has this vision where there's these three angels. The first one comes and says, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. So we have this declaration that God's judgment is coming on the earth. And then the second angel comes and kind of says the same thing in a different way. He says, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. So this is the first time John mentions Babylon the Great, and she's actually going to become another figure in the book of Revelation in the next couple chapters. But Babylon in the ancient world was the city that ruled the Babylonian Empire, which had conquered Israel. And Babylon in Revelation, while we'll talk more about it later, stands in, in some ways, in the same place as the beast, right? It represents the sort of powers and systems of this world that are opposed to the Lamb. But what John is worried about is the church compromising with Babylon. You see this warning of the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. Sexual immorality is an image at several places in Revelation, and it is not actually about (coughs) sexual sin, which is bad, and there's a good place to talk about. But instead, what, what John is doing In the Old Testament, you have this image that says, like, Israel, God's people, are pictured as God's bride, right? They're supposed to be 
you know, God is sort of the husband to his people who loves and provides and cares for them, and they're supposed to love and be, you know, be faithful to him in response. And throughout the Old Testament, one of the main images of idolatry is adultery. It's sexual immorality. It's turning aside from God to worship idols, turning aside from our rightful husband, the Lord, to these false lovers. And that is the idea for John in Revelation that he's using it as. The nations have been led astray from the worship of the true God and have instead become adulterers with the idols of the beast. And the church is being tempted to turn aside in that same way. But that would be a bad idea, as John goes on to describe the fall of Babylon. Verse 9, And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger. So if we drink the cup of Babylon, right? We will also drink the cup of God's judgment. And let me just read John's description of that wrath, and then we'll talk about it. And he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. All right, so... First, we need to understand that that image is drawn from the Old Testament, just like almost everything in Revelation. In particular, it's drawn from Isaiah 34 and a couple of other texts which describe the destruction of these cities that are opposed to God's people. Uh, Isaiah 34 is about Edom. It says, And the streams of Edom shall be turned into pitch, and her soil into sulfur. Her land shall become burning pitch. Pitch is like flammable tar stuff. Night and day it shall not be quenched, its smoke shall go up forever. So the immediate imagery John is using is of a burning city, and that's because he's picturing kind of Babylon burning, and then communicating that judgment falling on those who join with Babylon. Two things about what's going on for John more generally, and it's kind of on the one hand, on the other. On the one hand, it is true because of that, that when we read that description of hell, of God's judgment, which is what John is describing, that that is symbolic in the sense that um, hell in scripture is always sort of described symbolically. It's a place of utter darkness and burning fire. It's a place where God is absent and also where he's sitting in judgment. And so all of that, in a sense, uh, like there's this sort of cartoonish, right, like dude with a pitchfork and, you know, like you seem like the far side comics and stuff. And that is, you know, Scripture does not describe hell in that kind of literal way, but what Scripture is saying in its symbolic language is that God's judgment will be terrible and continual. You can see that in verses 10 and 11. John uses Old Testament images, but he adds words like torment, a word only used in the New Testament to describe conscious suffering. Um, And he says there is no rest from this torment. That those under judgment are not just destroyed like Edom, but they have this sort of ongoing, eternal suffering. And this morning, because I know that's hard for us, we are not going to actually take the time to dig into all the specifics that we wrestle with about that question and whether that's just. And I apologize, but we actually once earlier in our sermon talked about that. And we will again in Revelation 20 have to talk about this. And um, and so we're going to kind of save that discussion for those two points, although you can go back and listen from a few months ago when we talked about it before. 
Um, but here is what we need to understand about this for this morning. The key thing is that all of this is meant to illustrate a simple truth that we're supposed to take to heart as the church. And that truth is that God's judgment is coming on Babylon, and that judgment will therefore fall on us if we join with her. That's what John's trying to say, that Babylon is going to burn, that it is under God's judgment, and so it would be a bad idea for us to join with her. Let me just say this maybe too. Um, I think part of why we struggle with the way that John portrays that is we have this really individualistic American way of viewing the world. And so in Scripture, right, the whole universe is pictured as a, a battle between two sides. And on one side, it's the lamb and his angels. And on the other side, it's the dragon and his angels. And, you know, like there's all these powers and, you know, and forces in the world that then line up with those things. And because of that reality of cosmic conflict, our individual actions in the world get caught up in that. Um, what scripture would stress is that our sin is actually sort of joining with the side of darkness and that um, obedience and seeking to serve the kingdom is joining with the side of light. And God is gracious, right, in saving us out of our sin because none of us are not caught in that place of tension and conflict. But because of that, that means that the choices we make in this life have real significance. And that's part of why John wants us to recognize that judgment that is coming. Um, Imagine you live in a country, and you've grown up there, and you love your country, and, um, you know, and maybe, and it goes to war, right? And you're not even a soldier, but, you know, you're just a good citizen, and you pay your taxes and try to support the troops and stuff. Um, that sounds fine, unless you're in Germany in 1940, <laughs> right? In which case, suddenly, those seemingly kind of innocuous actions get this whole different cast to them, because there's a real sense in which you have the blood of the Holocaust on your hands by supporting that. That's sort of how the universe is being pictured here, right? And that's why God's judgment is working the way that it is. And let me just add to that a second truth, because we're going to take these together. In addition to the fact that Babylon will burn, John is stressing that the earth as a whole will be judged, that God is coming to judge the world. You start in verse 14, John describes two reapings of the earth. A reaping in the ancient world, you'd go out in the field, you had like a scythe or a sickle, and you'd cut the grain and like gather it into a bunch in your arms and tie it off, and that was how you would harvest grain. Two reapings, and they're described almost identically. I'll read you the first one. It says, Another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he sat on the cloud, swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. So two harvests that are almost identical, although the first harvest has the Son of Man, Jesus, doing it, and then the second one seems to emphasize the sort of sense of it's the grapes of God's wrath that are being harvested. I'll read that. The angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth, and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God, and the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia, which is like 200 miles. So those two reapings represent God's judgment in two senses. The first is a gathering in of his people, and then the second is a sort of gathering together of those who will be judged. One is being harvested for salvation, and the other for judgment. Let me just say a couple things about God's judgment there. First purpose of that imagery is not 
for us to celebrate its violence, nor is it for us to read it and point at non-Christians and say, ha, like that's, you know, that's for you. The reason this vision is so vivid, and all of these visions of judgment are so vivid, is again, because John is warning the church to endure, to persevere and not compromise and continue in the faith. Especially the church in his world as it faces persecution, and in a real sense, you know, having their blood be shed for the name of Christ, John is vividly describing God's judgment in order to call us to persevere. So then when we think about that, applying that to our lives, because we're the ones we need to apply that imagery to, this is where I want to be very careful to make a distinction, and hopefully this will help us think about what we're supposed to do and not do with that imagery of judgment. And for that distinction to work, we have to distinguish between two things, which we might biblically call struggling with sin on the one hand, and apostasy on the other. And I'll define that in a minute. But first, struggling with sin. Struggling with sin is something that every believer continues to do for the whole of their life. We are caught in this place where we are new creations by the Spirit, but also still in the flesh. And so there is not a place in Scripture for using judgment as a way to say don't struggle with sin, right? There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. However, there are warnings in Scripture about apostasy, which means turning away from the faith. Very serious ones in places like Galatians 5 and Hebrews 3 and 6 and 10. Here's from Hebrews 3, an example. It says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Apostasy is not struggling with sin, but apostasy is a thing where you aren't struggling anymore, right? Where you turn aside from Christ and and settle back into the world. Now, some of us have theological questions about that idea. Uh, We say, doesn't Scripture promise that God will preserve, keep us, and doesn't it promise that nothing in all creation will separate us from the love of God? And the answer to that question is yes, it does promise those things. That's why Hebrews 3 when it talks about apostasy, says it's sort of revealing that our hearts were never truly um, converted. But, while that is true, I don't have the ability to peer into anyone's heart, including my own heart. And so there is a real sense in which we have to deal with the world on the level of our actions and choices. And on that level, it is possible to so compromise with the world that we have turned away from Christ. It can be a gradual process, right? You start out kind of struggling with sin, and then you kind of don't struggle so much anymore, and pretty soon, you know, you're just not living a distinctive life at all. Um, But in John's categories, that is what it means to compromise with the beast. And what John is trying to say to that temptation, to that possibility, is that that is a deeply dangerous place for us to live. If we become citizens of Babylon, we will face judgment like she does. Here's, Here's how that applies. Let me try to sum that up. Fear of judgment does not have a place in a specific struggle you're having against a specific sin. It's not that you're like, man, like, I'm facing this temptation, but God's going to send me to hell if I give in. Because that is not true, and because you will at times give in to that temptation, and it will destroy your soul if you process individual temptations that way. But, on the other hand, it is true that fear of judgment does have a legitimate place in calling us as Christians to persevere more generally calling for us not to forsake Christ, 
and to continue to seek to be faithful in fighting against the world. And even then, this is, this is such a hard topic, I want to be careful, even then when you talk about apostasy, right? It's also possible for Christians who are truly in Christ to wander for season, and from the surface, you know, you can't process which of those things is happening. But there is a real sense in which we need to be sober about that. I remember talking to a guy, being, well, being present with a guy who was um, in the process of apostasy. He had abandoned his wife and kids and left the church and was making these enormously sinful choices that were causing all this destruction around him. And he was under church discipline um, because of that. And it had come to the point, you know, where we were um, confronting him and just saying, like, this is, you know, this is sin and you're unrepentant. And I remember him saying in that moment, he, he said, um, you can't, you know, you can't do this. I'm fine because God loves me and, you know, I, the grace of Jesus and that stuff. And in that moment, we had to look at him and say, brother, like, there's so many places where that is true. You are not in that place anymore. Like, the, what, you, what you are teetering on the brink of is something that puts you outside of being able to claim that for yourself. And just don't go there. So that's something we need to recognize. That's the hard side of this. That said, while there's an appropriate sense of God's justice and a sort of fearfulness that should in part motivate obedience, that is not all that motivates it. And we see two other things that motivates us to endure as well. And the first is that the Lamb has marked us. We've been marked by the Lamb. The end of chapter 13, you might remember, has the mark of the beast, which is 666, and we discussed that back when we discussed that, but we said there that it's in contrast here to what happens in verse 1. It says, John says, I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. So they have the mark of the Lamb and of God. Now, just catch up from past sermons. 144,000 for John stands in for the church. We talked about this back in um, Revelation chapter 6 and 5. Um, it's not that there's exactly 144,000 people. Instead, it's the 12 tribes times the 12 apostles times 1,000, which means a whole bunch in, in Hebrew. And John describes the same group as a multitude no one can count. But this is the people of God. They are marked out for God. And that's a sign of his presence with them. We see these saints joining with the song of the elders in the throne room in heaven. In verse 3, it says they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. And no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who'd been redeemed from the earth. And at the same time, they're marked out in this way that sets them apart from the earth. Um, a lot of you probably wonder in verse 4, it pictures them as virgins, right? And again, this is not... Uh, sexuality in you know in john is standing in for idolatry right and so just like babylon is leading people astray into idolatry this is an image of these people who have stayed faithful to the lord and not turned aside to idols and um they are waiting for that great wedding supper of the lamb they're god's special people and the point of all of this imagery is to say when you read this group right who do you picture do you picture like these saints right you know that are you know this like super christian you know, spiritual elite, whatever. In, in Revelation 14, that group is us. It's everybody who's in Jesus. <laughs> that this is actually describing us, even though we read it and, I mean, and I am like, oh, this has to be about somebody else. How does that fact help us endure? The answer is that it reminds us of our true identity. It reminds us of our true identity. 
Um, I feel this tension a lot, actually, when I get ready to come up here and preach. And the reason is because in our pastoral prayer before the sermon, I always pray the same thing, right? Which is, you know, be with all of us, though we're sinners, as we sit under your word, be with me, a sinner, as I seek to preach it. And I always feel a tension because there's a sense in which that's true, but there's also a wrong idea that we can get from that. And I just want to name this. So the reason I do it and will continue to do it is because we as Christians are absolutely still sinners in the sense that we still struggle with sin. Every one of us struggles with sin and temptation, and I do as a pastor, and it is important in a world that seems to encourage self-righteousness and use pastors as above it all and stuff. That's why I say that, right? But I always feel tension because there's another sense in which, in Scripture, sinner is not the core of our identity anymore. Um, that when you hear us as Christians described in the New Testament, it is as saints, it is as children of God, it is as those who are righteous and holy and set apart. Which doesn't mean that we don't still struggle with sin, but what it means is that if you are in Christ in Scripture, you are God's beloved child, and therefore you're expected to start to show the family resemblance. If you are in Christ, you are righteous in Jesus, and you're being called to grow in righteousness. If you are in Christ, you've been set free from bondage to sin and death, and you're called now to live as a servant of God. And that, those things are actually what's most true of our identity. We still struggle with sin, but we are God's children, we are righteous, we are saints at the core of our identity. And that is crucial as we fight against sin, because one of the weapons that we have is that new identity we have in Christ. That when we are tempted, what we should say is, that is not me anymore. I'm not a slave to sin anymore. I'm a child of God, and that actually motivates me to struggle against sin. So we're marked by the Lamb. And then one last motivation to endure. You should be motivated by God's surpassing greatness. The beginning of chapter 15 is a sort of bridge. So in verse 1, it introduces what the next vision is going to be of the seven bowls of God's wrath. But then verses 2 through 4 seem to conclude what we just read because we see these people who've triumphed over the beast singing in heaven. And they sing this song. Let me just read it. They say, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Here's why that's the conclusion of this section. In chapters 12 and 13, like we said, we see the dragon and we see these beasts. And if you stopped in 13, you would probably live your life in fear of those things. Because they're portrayed as big and powerful and mighty. And then what chapter 14 does is it shows us that as powerful as those things are, God in his judgment is toppling their power and triumphing over them. And so the place that the saints are delivered to here as they sing their praises before God is a celebration of his greatness. That his deeds are amazing, and his ways are true, and in the end all will fear and give him glory. The key to their endurance is an unshakable trust in that greatness of God. They fight sin and seek to obey and endure because of their trust in God's greatness. Have you ever thought about the fact that all sin is ultimately a denial in some way of the greatness of God? All sin is actually in some way a denial of God's greatness. Think about, like, 
Think about the idol of human approval, right? I mean, not, people, you know, we want them to like us, and that's not inherently bad. It's, you know, it's good to have good relationships with people and stuff. But this thing happens. It becomes sin. Human approval becomes sin when we seek it over the approval of God, right? When, when we say that God wants me to do something that I know people will disapprove of, and so I'm going to choose to do what man approves of instead of what God approves of. What are you doing in that moment? If, what your heart is doing is saying, here's humanity and here's God. I am going to reveal what I think is greater. And it's, in that case, humanity. And all sin works that way. Um, if, if, if I seek pleasure in a way that disobeys God, what I'm saying is that, God, you have promised me pleasures and joys and blessings in yourself, but I'm, I actually believe that this other thing is greater than that. If we seek power, right? We're implicitly saying, like, God, like, I'm not interested in your greatness. I'm interested in mine. That's true of all of our sin, but that also gives us another clue about how to endure. One of the truths we need to be reminded of, it's not that we need to be told to be less impressed with those created things. It's that we need to be told over and over of that greatness of God. That the more exalted we see him, the more we sing this song along with these saints, the more power we will have to endure. Because then you're just like, why, why would I seek this? Why would I fear a human being, you know, when God is on the throne and he's my father? Those are four different truths. If I can take all of that and try to sum it up, here's how I would do so. The way to change your behavior is always to change what you tell yourself. In, in every sphere, right? The way to change your behavior, in part, is to change what you tell yourself. Like, if you, if you decide to get healthy, but you're just telling yourself, like, I hate exercise, I hate vegetables all the time, it's, it's not going to work, right? And that's true spiritually, too. That the way you fight sin is by changing what we tell ourselves. In this case, by telling ourselves God's truths. And so what I'm going to do from all of this, let me just sum this up. Here are three truths that John's trying to illustrate here to tell yourself. One— the truth that, that sin leads to destruction. So when you're faced with temptation, what you're called to do is to just tell yourself the truth about the destruction that sin always brings. Two, that Jesus has marked us. That when we're faced with sin, simply to practice telling ourselves, I belong to the Lamb. I am marked out by Him. I am called by His name. He has put His Spirit in me. Three, tell ourselves that God is worth it. That he is worthy and worth more than any created thing. That, that the joy we have in him is worth more than the joy that this sin is offering. And what I want to encourage you to do is just, if you take those truths, and each day as you struggle with sin, you tell yourself those truths, you preach them to your heart, you're going to find that actually a lot of those struggles become easier. Not that they aren't still hard, right? Not, and not that you won't still struggle, but much of the power of sin comes from us losing sight of those truths. And so let's remind ourselves of them and so endure. Let's pray. God and Father, impress on our hearts the truth once more and build us up in you. Pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ, who conquered the dragon. Amen.